spiritual about music that transcends what the words are saying. I think it's the psychic phenomenon which occurs when the divinity becomes manifest. It is the point which one travels by the most visible and physical means, yet to the traveler it is itself invisible. Trance is a way to merge with the cosmic beat of the universe, a way to heal, to release emotion, to awaken spirit, to taste the ecstasy of the dance. Metro magical patterns of percussion is the discussion solution of close logic connected to the powers that be with the healing rhythmic synergy. Tickle tribal, a positively primal, shamanic, anarchistic, archaic revival. And I think that's what music was originally. In ancient times, we had a different consciousness. It wasn't the kind of consciousness that we have now. When people made sounds, they could see other beings still. We only forgot to do that when we developed Western language and perspective and architecture. Our consciousness changed. We've seen how powerful music is. Its ability to inspire, indoctrinate, organize thought patterns, produce endorphin highs, generate sonic environments, Two, as Stone's guitarist Keith Richards said, work in all kinds of mysterious ways. But we can never really understand the heart of this mystery or the real bottom line of music's power until we look at its spiritual connection. Perhaps no living musician has had more experience with music's power to move and enthrall an audience than Oscar-winning composer John Williams. His film scores for many of our most popular movies have touched millions of lives worldwide, leading him to observe the one thing perhaps that every culture on earth shares, even before language, is music. There's a very basic human, nonverbal aspect to our need to make music and use it as part of our human expression. It doesn't have to do with articulation of a language, but with something spiritual. Mickey Hart echoed this idea of music being a type of proto-language, what Scottish writer and critic Thomas Carlyle called the speech of angels, when he described music as the language of God, a secret call whose intention is to vibrate the mind and body, to form a union with the spirit world. It is the preferred medium for communication with the gods. This union with the spirit has been described by many of rock's greatest luminaries. The Who's Pete Townsend declared, when I'm on stage, I feel this incredible, almost spiritual experience. When they occur, they are sacred. 
pop superstar Michael Jackson has written, On many an occasion when I'm dancing, I have felt touched by something sacred. In those moments, I felt my spirit soar and become one with everything that exists. John Anderson of Yes acknowledged, Music has always been religious. Music is a passion and a vehicle for understanding why we are here. It's a remembering of the past and ritual. Irish bluesman Van Morrison, one of contemporary music's most brilliant and enduring performers, agrees. Music is spiritual, he declared. Singing, playing an instrument is spiritual. It's coming from a spiritual world. I think spirituality exists mostly in art and in music, and the last place you're going to find it is in religion. Peter Gabriel has described music as a spiritual doorway. Its power comes from the fact that it plugs directly into the soul. A sentiment foreshadowed by hippie troubadour Donovan when he declared that rock was a perfect religious vehicle. Jefferson Airplane singer Grace Slick might have been wondering where that religious vehicle was headed when she stared out at the mind-blowing, culture-defining freakout that was the first Woodstock and wondered, were we, the bands, there to invoke the spirits, the gods? Were we pagan? Were we all shamans of equal power, channeling an unknown energy, seeking fluidity? Paul Stanley of KISS put a slightly different spin on a very similar conclusion. In other ways, I think of myself as kind of like a holy roller preacher. I'm testifying and I'm getting everybody riled up to the power of almighty rock and roll. No band has had more experience and has experimented more with channeling this type of spiritual energy than the Grateful Dead. The band's name and talisman was taken from a character in folk tradition who served as a ferryman, a conduit, a bridge to the spirit world, and the band provided a musical experience that offered safe passage to the other side. In 1995, guitarist Jerry Garcia made the final voyage to the other side, dying from a heart attack brought on by years of drug abuse. One fan eulogized the 53-year-old band leader by describing just how spiritual their concerts had become. A dead show was not just a concert, it was a place of worship. The band was the high priest, the songs, the liturgy, the dancing, the prayer, the audience, the congregation. And in those moments of perfect grateful deadness, we collectively stormed the gates of heaven, entered a sacred chamber of the universe from which we returned, always reluctantly, always transformed. In all this, bassist Phil Lesh got right to the bottom line when he said, every place we play is church. And Jimi Hendrix agrees. Do you think music has a meaning? Oh yeah, definitely. It's going to be more spiritual so than anything. Uh, pretty soon I believe that they're going to have to rely on music to uh, like get some kind of peace of mind or satisfaction, direction actually. 
The background of our music, he said in 1968, is a spiritual blues thing. We're making our music into electric church music, a new kind of Bible you carry in your hearts. Rock is more than music. It's like church. Something with you. I heard you use the expression uh, an electric church as, a, as an ambition you had. Was this speaking metaphorically or poetically, or do you really want to... That's just a belief that I have, you know, it's... We plan for our sound to go inside the soul of the person, actually, you know, and see if they can awaken some kind of pain in their minds, you know, because there's so many sleeping people. <laughs> 30 years later, echoes of this same philosophy can be found everywhere. From the Lollapalooza festivals, as conceived by Perry Farrell, to the all-night dance parties, or raves, that crop up in major cities throughout America and the world. Dr. Russell Newcomb, a sociologist who specializes in rave culture, extended Lesh's and Hendrick's religious metaphor when he wrote, DJs are the high priests of the rave ceremony, responding to the mood of the crowd, with their mixing desks symbolizing the altar, the only direction in which the ravers consistently face. Dancing at raves may be construed as the method by which ravers worship the god of altered consciousness. The fact is, there's a certain inevitability to this type of connection. Music has always been seen as fundamentally spiritual, as something closely associated with religion and worship. Even the very word music suggests this spiritual dimension. Its etymological root, muse, is the name of the spirit beings, daughters of Zeus, who the ancient Greeks felt were responsible for the inspiration of all art. Over 3,000 years later, this connection between muses, or spirits, and music hasn't just survived, it's thrived. The world of popular music virtually teems with artists who believe they are channelers for spiritual forces guiding lights to the undiscovered areas of our subconscious. Often these spirits are credited with helping inspire or even compose a particular song. John Lennon, for example, has stated, when the real music comes to me, it has nothing to do with me because I'm just a channel. It's given to me and I transcribe it like a channel. A lot of the songs were written in about 15 minutes to 45 minutes, just really quickly. Glenn and I in the room, very stream of consciousness, as though, many times we felt as though it was being channeled through us. I, and plus my songwriting too, I'm very, very aware that when I write a good song, I'm just acting as like a messenger. It comes from a higher source, you know. I don't, I don't, I'm not so egotistical that I think that I've done this all on my own. I'm very, very aware there's a higher source sort of guiding me through this, and I'm just acting as a messenger. Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant felt that their most popular song, Stairway to Heaven, was given in much the same way. I was holding a paper and pencil, then all of a sudden my hand was writing out words. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. And she's buying a stairway to heaven. I just sat there and looked at the words, and then I almost leapt out of my seat. I 
There were some very strong vibrations in that place, and we're not quite sure of what nature, you know. We've always, in, within the band, said there is a fifth member, a, a mystical member, yeah. The members of Black Sabbath also know exactly what Plant was talking about. We would literally show up in a room, and it was almost as if the songs were already written. When we first wrote this sort of music, we didn't even know what we were doing, and we were oh, God, this... We like this, you know, it's strange, but we like it. Yeah, although it is a rock and roll band, uh, there's a phenomena involved there where that stuff just comes from somewhere. And it just so happened that it, we, we happened to be the ones that it came to. Tori Amos' music is channeled more deliberately, making use at times of fairy rings, sympathetic magic, sacred geography, and psychoactive drugs. When people were asking me about the whole fairy thing, she told one interviewer, it was because I believe in the spirit side. I think music comes through dimensions. It's arrogant to think you can create music on your own. There's a co-creation going on. I don't know with whom, but there is this well that we all tap into. On other occasions, she has described the songs themselves as spiritual entities. I feel like it's really kind of nice they come and use my body to say what they want to say. It's an energy force that comes and visits me. But not only do many musicians see spiritual forces attending the process of creation and composition, the performance itself can also be suffused with supernatural energies. Carlos Santana, whose supernatural disc was among the most popular and critically acclaimed recordings of 2000, can hardly discuss his music without bringing up its, well, supernatural characteristics. It's a spiritual vibe. It's a spiritual hit. It's a hit, you know, it's a hit that you can't get at church. In an interview with Guitar Player magazine, he declared, I am the string and the supreme is the musician. It's like sometimes I'm not aware I can do some of these things on my guitar because in reality, I'm not doing them. They are being done through me. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Santana was more specific concerning the identity of this supernatural entity, identifying him as Metatron, the architect of physical life. His personal studio, a place he calls church, features candles, the word Metatron spelled out in intricately painted picture letters on the floor, and a yellow legal pad Santana uses to record the spirit's messages when they come to him like a fax machine. Then there's this striking observation by fusion guitarist extraordinaire John McLaughlin. One night we were playing and suddenly the spirit entered into me and I was playing, but it was no longer me playing. Porno for Pyro's guitarist Peter DiStefano echoed McLaughlin when he observed, a lot of that guitar playing is not me. We figure we got help from something more powerful. 
And earlier in this video, we saw ACDC guitarist Angus Young say almost the exact same thing. Someone else is steering me. I'm just along for the ride. I become possessed when I'm on stage. Of course, the real question then becomes, just who or what is steering him? Where exactly is this other side to which the Grateful Dead ferries its audience? What spirits are being channeled? And what God does the Electric Sky Church celebrate? To help answer these questions and to more fully understand the mystical relationship that exists between man and music, we must first understand some basic biblical truths concerning the fundamental nature of reality. Again, you may choose not to believe these principles, but at least try to understand them. Number one, the material universe is not all that exists. One of the scripture's primary messages is that the universe in which we live is a created one, having its origins in an eternal spiritual realm that exists outside the scope of our physical senses. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us that God is spirit. And it's this inexpressibly wise, loving, and all-powerful spirit who is the creator and sustainer of all things. His is the transcendent reality. Number two, man is a spiritual as well as a physical being. Genesis gives us the account of our origins. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So God created man in his own image. In other words, spirit begat spirit. From the breath of God that gave us life to his image impressed upon our hearts, you and I are spirits. And as spirits, the principles and the personalities that make up the spiritual world profoundly affect each of us whether we are aware of them or not. Number three, as image bearers of God, the primary purpose for our existence is to know, enjoy, and glorify the one who created and redeemed us. Jesus declared, this is eternal life, to know God and the Savior whom he has sent. Continuing with the passage of scripture we read a moment ago, the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The worship spoken of here is not some dry religious exercise, but the natural response to knowing and experiencing God. And both biblically and scientifically, there is no more profound way to be drawn into and then express this experience than through music. As perhaps the greatest musician in history, Johann Sebastian Bach said, the end of all music should be the glory of God and the refreshment of the human spirit. An important side note here, because we were created for worship, make no mistake about it, each of us will worship someone or something. For those who don't know God, this innate drive to worship, to find and then serve something that gives meaning and direction to one's life, will sublimate itself in a thousand different ways. 
self, sex, money, family, honor, ease, country, pleasure, pain, power, false gods, art, knowledge, heroes, self, self, and more self. The capacity of the human heart to manufacture idols is practically limitless. And as we'll see, the music industry affords the perfect vehicle in which to do this. And isn't it interesting how often this idolatry can even take on the very form and feel of religious worship. Number four, through sin man fell and was separated from God. Throughout scripture, the words of God in Ezekiel are echoed again and again. The soul who sins shall die. The death spoken of here manifests itself in several ways, but most significantly in a spiritual sense, as through our sin we are separated from the God of all life and liberty, locked in our ego boxes. Subject to the tyranny of self and sin, we are no longer members of God's family, but instead walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. As fallen creatures, who by our very nature are children of wrath, we are utterly incapable of redeeming ourselves before a just and holy God. Into this hopeless situation, God sent a Savior, His own Son, to pay the penalty for our sins, to destroy the power of this Prince of the Air, and to bring man back into His kingdom family. Number 5. The Kingdom of Darkness is Real and is the primary source of all opposition to God. The lord of this diabolical kingdom is the prince of the air, more commonly known as Satan or the devil. With a horde of wicked spirits at his command, he is called the god of this age, the world that is at war with the true god. Though cast down and defeated by Christ through the cross, he has power wherever people grant it to him through their obedience to his satanic law a law that we'll be looking at in greater detail later in this presentation. Wherever he's granted power, his task is essentially twofold. First, to stimulate the variety of lusts resident within the human heart, thereby degrading people as well as bringing them into greater bondage and control. For by what a man is overcome, by this also is he brought into bondage. Second to oppose Christians' efforts to bring others to Christ and thus steal away Satan's subjects. The battlefield here is the human mind and will. 
Using a variety of techniques, Satan's strategy is to fill us with lies, to convince us that black is white and evil good. I have to believe that sin can make a better man. To help justify our sins and blind us to our need for a savior. To distort our image of God. Just a slob like one of us. And erase or trivialize our image of Satan, convincing us that he either doesn't exist or that he's a cartoon imp in red pajamas. Put simply, to blind the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Dead inside, dead inside, every single one of us, the dead inside, dead inside, dead inside, every single one of us, the dead inside. Given its power over the heart of man, Music is among the most potent carriers of this type of deception. Of course, any style of music can be perverted by evil. Many of the elements this presentation examines are found in other musical forms as well. The reason for our focus on rock, and by rock we mean the broad spectrum of popular music in all its forms, is both its unparalleled popularity and the manner in which it has given place to evil. Subtly at first, then with increasing blatancy. As rock's celebrants have been brought under its rhythmic sway, it has become one of the most potent weapons in Satan's arsenal of deception. Fortunately, Satan's historically proven tendency for overachieving has resulted in a blatancy that, when examined by an objective inquirer, can be used to expose the devil's presence and purposes. Hence, this presentation. Lay down your soul and one last point before we begin to dust rock music for Satan's fingerprints. Second Corinthians tells us that the devil can disguise himself as an angel of light. That he can, in other words, appear as something beautiful, even Christ-like. Beautiful child of God and man. Don't be fooled. Satan doesn't just manifest his power through a Hitler or a Charles Manson. He can use your favorite guitarist, a pretty pop singer, maybe even you. Anyone who resists the will of God is fertile soil for his seeds of deception. I try to understand my thoughts. There's nothing here. It's common today in our relativistic and ultra-democratic world to think that all gods, 
like all men, are created equal. That ultimately there's no real right or wrong, no transcendent good or evil. Artists like Mickey Hart can talk about communication with the gods like it's all pretty much the same thing. You have your god and I have mine. It's no big deal. You got the right key, baby, but the wrong key, ho, yo. I'd like to thank uh, a higher power we call God for uh, seeing us through some amazing ups and downs. Well, the Bible, as we've just seen, says there's no bigger deal anywhere. There's only one God, the source of all life, truth, goodness, and beauty. Outside of Him and His loving dominion, there's evil, an evil we're born with, and an evil that grows within us as we seek to live life on our own terms. And then there are the forces of wickedness in the spiritual realm that help us in this rebellion. Forces Ozzy Osbourne was ultimately referring to when he wondered if he was perhaps a medium for some outside force and then went on to say that he hoped it wasn't Satan. Ozzy does well to wonder. But wondering is not enough when it comes to those issues that go to the very heart of the truth, our lives, and our eternal destinies. We need to know, and we need to have the humility and the courage necessary to submit to this knowledge, regardless of where it leads. Over 2,000 years ago, the Chinese philosopher Mencius made a very perceptive observation about human nature. To act without clear understanding, to form habits without investigation, to follow a path all one's life without knowing where it really leads. Such is the behavior of the multitude. In the next section, Notes from the Underground, We'll look more closely at these habits, paths, and behaviors as commonly practiced in our postmodern world. And more importantly, we'll examine what T.S. Eliot, among others, referred to as the cult, the religious beliefs upon which our culture is based, and see how these beliefs and the gods they represent have materialized through the spiritual conduit of rock and roll.